We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator fans, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm Alan Williams, right here next to James DiVirgilio. Well, that didn't go how we wanted it to. Rough Gator loss. We had a great show for you guys, though, today. We're going to hear from our friend Blake Alderman, our recruiting expert, we're going to hear from our friend Jeff Norris inside from inside the Bama Nation. But first, James, were you surprised at how badly the Gators got beat on Saturday? I, I wasn't surprised. If we recall last week, looking at film, we said, this game could go a lot of different ways, and none of them would surprise me. It, it's just it's disappointing. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm upset about it. Um, more than I am surprised because there were plenty of narratives where Florida State was going to beat us badly. They're older. They have better players. They potentially have a better coach. They're playing at home. Um, It's just one of those things where you wrap your head around it and you say, it doesn't really matter to me if I'm surprised or not surprised. It doesn't matter on film how I saw that Florida State was difficult to stop on offense, was exploitable on defense, how some of those things happened, some didn't the plethora of injuries, all the things, none of it makes me feel better. I just find myself being really mad that two years in a row we played Florida State, didn't score an offensive touchdown. They beat us four years in a row. It's 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 what I would say back in the day when we were dominating them, when we were dominating Tennessee or Georgia, that they're not our rival anymore because we just kill them. And we're on the other end of that, and I'm mad about it. Yeah, it was rough. Uh, that's four years in a row, and if not for you know the one must champ year in 2012, it's like six or seven. So that that's not nice. I mean, you're right. When we're pounding Georgia over a 20-year period, it's like you kind of forget about them. So FSU, I think, is number one for sure. Rival in Gator fans' hearts and minds. So losing to them four years in a row, is it's a tough pill to swallow. And But you're right. This, you know, Going into the game, it felt like we maybe had more to play for. But the deck was stacked against this team. With like you mentioned, some factors we didn't, you know, a lot of people weren't talking about. This is a veteran FSU team that gets masked a little bit because their quarterback is young, but a lot of talent at home, and their strengths versus our weaknesses were really the overwhelming points. And and of course we'll get to this, but the injuries continue to pile up for the Gators. So 
all in all, a really frustrating experience for, I'm sure, the team and, of course, the fans. Let's get into why this was such a lopsided victory. And, of course, the most glaring problem for the Gators was on offense. Why did we struggle so much on offense? Let's start with what I said last week, which was that we needed to be able to complete passes spreading Florida State out. We tried it twice in the game. The first in the first quarter was an Austin Appleby fumble. And the second was a nickelback sack almost immediately. Yeah, when we went to five wide, we got exposed seemingly. But do you think we should have gone to it more? And that's and that's real the fundamental question. But let me rewind that for a second because I, I don't think the five wide schematically was as bad as it looked during the game. In fact, I think it was actually really good. And we'll break down that in a little bit in a second. But most importantly, Austin Appleby started this game off about as poorly as you could start a football game off. Looking at my notes here now from the film, it was really hard for me to watch this film. I didn't want to watch the game again. I was I was too upset and too frustrated with it. But he missed Goolsby early on, on on an open play in the end zone on fourth down. And we're going to talk about whether or not we should have won on fourth down. But that's a nickelback blitz, which Florida State did a lot. You're going to hear that a lot on this podcast. And he tries to throw the ball to Brandon Powell, which is a play Florida State's seen on tape a million times. And at first thought, I'm thinking, why are we running a play we've run a million times on tape to Brandon Powell and that little hitch route in the three bunch formation. But we didn't, we were actually running a deep in, in the back of the end zone of Goolsby who was open and Appleby needs to recognize the nickel blitz and deliver that pass. That's an unaccounted for blitz are supposed to get through the line. There is no pass protection. Appleby should recognize that and hit the right man. He doesn't. Things only get worse for him. He fumbles out of the five wide when he's got a ton of time. He leaves the pocket. He has jittery feet. He then has a bad throw to Powell, a bad throw to Cleveland Callaway drops a corner out that was thrown late, but was still there and a catchable ball, and and really just never established himself in the game. So we we, we failed on a lot of simple throws he could have made to extend this game to move the ball. Um, so it starts with Appleby. It moves then to the offensive line. The offensive line actually played okay in the first half of the game. It felt like they didn't, but a lot of that really was Appleby. As the game progressed, it got worse and worse. You continue to have sharp just getting beat off the line straight away two or three times a game. You had interior line pressure that that was coming from all angles against really almost all of our offensive linemen. And you had a running back just whiffing on pass protection frequently and consistently in the second half. So if you want to boil it down to two basic things, it's the same thing we've talked about all year long. It's the same thing we talked about in the beginning of the year, offensive line and quarterback play. If we were going to be good, we had to have those things. We have not had those things. It's extremely frustrating given that McElwain is an offensive coach. And the offense is not that injured compared to what our defense is. So that's what led to the problems. But it's like, tell me something I don't know. It's the offensive line and the quarterback. For sure. And FSU's defensive line, they led the nation in sacks. And they looked like that in this game. Ton of pressure. So even you know, if they weren't sacking Appleby, they were put him in places where he was really uncomfortable and he didn't deal with it well, but it wasn't totally, you know, phantom pressure. I mean, sometimes he was feeling it or it wasn't there, but that's because they were in his face all game. They brought pressure and he didn't deal with it. I, they blitz this more than I've seen anybody blitz us in a long time. And DeMar- Demarcus Walker, their, their defensive end number 44 was living in the backfield. He was almost unblockable. Juwan Taylor, our freshman, true freshman right tackle, has had a very excellent year. That was too big a challenge for him. He could not handle either his speed or his power. So, I don't know. It looked like we couldn't do anything. All of our plays were 
we like to throw these short little hitches, short little ends, drag routes. They were all over that, all over it. I mean, you saw anytime we even caught a pass, we're getting tackled immediately. They're jumping those routes. So, and I, I don't know that we had the time or felt like we had the time to go downfield to really challenge that. So it seemed like there was nothing we could do. Yeah, and game plan wise, I think you hit you hit the nail really on the head. And that's that we talked specifically last week that we could not throw the ball underneath against Florida State. That you had to challenge them vertically by spreading them out. And oh, what did we do? We ran a bunch of flat passes. Now, again, we have plenty of vertical routes going deep. This is why I say a lot a lot of people out there are calling for Nussmeyer's head, but I can't know that. Yes, Nussmeyer at Michigan was was horrifically bad. He he was the offensive coordinator for the worst offense they've ever had. Michigan fans dislike him as strongly as you can dislike an offensive coordinator. I don't know what to do about him because so much of this stuff is not necessarily his fault. But like you said, Florida State after the first drive, Florida State actually sat back a little bit. They didn't bring any edge pressure and they played pretty normal defense and we we abused them. We hit them with a lot of good plays. We had time in the pocket. It was actually a really good clean drive. The adjustment that happened was the next few passes Appleby made weren't complete, even though guys said, this dude can't throw. He's not going to throw today. Maybe he's thrown in the past, but we have zero fear of him throwing right now. And they continue to relentlessly blitz the nickel almost every single play. We were in a passing down. And they took away all of our underneath passes. Because what they were doing was they were bringing a safety downhill to cover the voided space. And they just were unafraid. Frequently having eight men in the box, frequently bringing a safety down to help on the run. And they took away what we wanted to do, which is run the ball. So when you get that sort of situation going on in a football game, you're doing exactly what the Florida State defense wants you to do, which is play to their strengths. It's precisely what we said could not happen, and it happened. I think if we played this game 10 times, knowing what we now know, our offense wouldn't be able to overcome those errors because we just, you can say that, oh, we could have caught this pass or we could have made that throw, but we haven't done those things against good defenses consistently. Florida State felt so, so comfortable that we couldn't challenge them. That's the worst place to be as an offense. It's right where we put ourselves. And even though this game was really close, it was 10-6 to midway through the third quarter, if all of you out there are feeling like we were so far away, it's because we're a, a horrible offensive football team, and that's real. And that's frustrating with the level of talent that we're supposed to have and the fact that we're Florida. Like, that is a frustrating thing week in and week out to get on this podcast and talk about how bad we are on offense. Yeah, I mean, what do we end up on third downs? I mean, there's a big stretch of the game where we were over on third down, and you're you're never going to win a football game like that. What was the whole game? We didn't convert a third down. For the first time in 37 years, Florida State's <laughs> not allowed an offense to convert a third okay, down. Okay, I wasn't sure if we got one right at the very end or not, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the story of the game is, I mean, if you're going to pick out one stat and to highlight our offensive ineptitude, that would be it. And so running the ball looked terrible. Passing the ball looked terrible. You know, that first drive, we were able to, you know, be a little deceptive in what we're doing, and they hadn't really keyed in on it yet. Um, that was the only time we even looked like a competent group out there. And, you know, if I was like, man, that was a great first drive. If we can play like that, we're in this game. But we couldn't keep it up. Now, the defense, on the other hand, played pretty well. I would say played excellently, especially when you consider how many people we were missing um, I know you were impressed by Jeff Collins' work in this game. Jeff Collins continues to just really impress me. One of the big questions we asked this season was, what would Jeff Collins do this year? Yeah, can he keep up with that, you know, 
must champ level of play that you know that been the hallmark of this team in the previous regime you know would we would there be a big fall off and i think that he's answered that question with the resounding yes i, I prefer him schematically to must champ already what we don't know about him yet is can he identify and recruit his own playmakers to do this we've seen some good things out of the freshman for sure but to, to see if he can sustain this will be his next task but schematically and really week-to-week game planning, he's been phenomenal. I'm surprised he hasn't gotten more attention, but that's just how bad our offense is. The people don't look at us, oh, our defense is good every year. But what he has done with the injuries we had in that game, to have that be a 10-6 to game on the road against a prolific Florida State offense was magical. You have two freshman linebackers. You've got a freshman safety. You have half your defensive line missing. And, and we're right in that game at 10-6. to I mean, that, that, that is incredible. On the other side of the ball, you have an offense that really has only a couple of injuries. So Jeff Collins is the one dealing with all the injuries. He wasn't the, the heralded name we brought in. He wasn't the let's bring in the guy to fix the offense job. But I just cannot say enough about what him and the whole entire defensive staff is doing. It is literally the complete opposite of how I feel about the offense, which is on one hand great and on the other hand frustrating. But yeah, hats off to them. Really phenomenal job. Dealt a really bad hand on the road. And, and, and again, just can't say enough about them. I don't think there's anything else they could have done in that game. I mean, once you have Daniel McMillan playing nickelback against Florida State at the college level, at this level, it's insane. Yeah. And the fact that we had to do that is insane. And and what are you going to do in that scenario, really? I mean, our, our, our pass defense fell off a cliff at that point in time. And oh, by the way, we only gave up 138 passing yards in the entire game. In the entire game. Yeah. 138. It was sad because on there was that big third and 17 or whatever that they picked up and scored a touchdown on where Duke goes out for a play, you know, end up coming back for a second and then had to go out again. But early in the game, our freshman safety, the other Jawan Taylor, you know, can't play. So we basically have no one that we feel comfortable with at nickel. So, yeah, we're playing our linebacker who, oh, by the way, doesn't normally ever play if we have healthy linebackers. So, yeah, I mean, watching those guys compete and really go after it was encouraging, but you get to a point where you just can't overwhelm the sheer number of injuries across the entire defense, you know, on every level. And, you know, losing a guy like Jordan Sherritt, especially when you don't have Brian Cox Jr. available, that was going to play, you know, a huge role in this game. And then losing Duke Dawson, when you don't, when Chauncey Gardner is already not available to play that, because he's the one playing safety. So um, I was impressed by, how they played, you know, and of course, Florida State tacks on another spike touchdown at the end, which, you know, I would fully love us to do if we were the other way around. So not blaming them. But, you know, this game, a little closer than the final score looks. That's only a credit to the defense and special teams. Which yeah, and our scores were right there. I think I had Florida State winning 24-17, which is pretty close to what it was, although we really didn't score an offensive point. But, but yeah, I mean, what do you, food for thought here. So like we said, two years, no touchdowns. Two years, eight offensive points. We got up six sacks to Florida State. Six sacks in the rivalry game. And how about this one for a thought for the day, Alan? We're 114th on offense this year. Yeah. Last year, we finished 100th. 100th. We were better on offense last year than we were this year. Now, a lot of that has to do with Will Greer. But let me hit you with this. The two years in McIlwain's offense now are worse than all all of the previous Florida Gator coaches with the exception of the 4-8 and eight Will Muschamp season. That means every single Will Muschamp season with the exception of 4-8 and eight, is better than the two years we've had under my dog-and-play quarterback, guru of all gurus, McIlwain. 
It's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. How can you not be frustrated? That's that's sobering to hear that statistic, and I saw that this morning. Now, a couple caveats to that. You know, he hasn't gotten a chance to play a quarterback that he's picked out, you know, as a freshman. You know, Austin Appleby. There's a reason that he couldn't hold on to the job at Purdue. Luke Del Rio is a glorified walk-on. Treon Harris is, of course, like we said, maybe the worst quarterback ever to take that many snaps at Florida. So it's hard to kill him on this when you when we ha- when he has had good quarterback play. The offenses look good. When Del Rio or Appleby have played well, the offenses look functional. They just haven't been able to do that consistently. And that that number 114 is brutal. That's that's a stain on him that we couldn't create a little more offensive competency. But I don't know. I mean, you look at any program who doesn't have a quarterback, and they're going to be pretty miserable, especially competing against the talent we're competing with week in, week out. It's just, I just sit here staring at the studio wall, just thinking, I thought this team could be in the 40s this year on offense. We, like, was yeah, I under 50s. the most ridiculous delusion ever? I think I was right to say if we were there, we'd have been a national championship contender. I think we were nail on the head right there. I picked us to win nine games, which technically were nine and three, if you count the Presbyterian win as a win. So I'm right there. Why am I so mad? I'm so mad because there was supposed to be improvement on the offense. And and I didn't buy the Luke Del Rio bill of goods. We talked about that. I didn't buy in the preseason. The guy hadn't played a game. He was a walk-on transfer. Appleby, I thought, was a good patchwork guy. I think he's done what he's supposed to do. For any of you that are really mad at Appleby, he's a graduate transfer from Purdue that came in and, and sort of did what a guy like that does. You know, you're never going to ride him as a high, but... It's just maddening. It really is just maddening. Six straight years of futility. You have three different coaches presiding over the futility. And I'm sick of it. I'm over it. I've had enough of it. And obviously the Wilger thing sticks in my crawl. And I'm supposed to ask you this question later in this segment. But I'm going to ask you now. Ask me about my brother on Saturday night. Maybe the best question of the year. If you take away Will Greer's performance for six games with Coach McElwain, take that away. And look at the rest of the sample size and how we played. How do you think you would feel about Coach McElwain and other Gator fans? Like, what? I mean, it's it's abysmal. Yeah, well, you can look at it one way where he's only had limited success. Like, you know, the only time he was successful was that small stretch of time, maybe two or three games where Greer was playing the whole game. So is that the outlier? Or is the rest of the time the outlier? Because we've had such terrible quarterback play. And I would tend towards option B that, Given a good quarterback, McIlwain can be very successful. And, you know, Wilger wasn't in optimal circumstances. It's not like we had everything else around him and then if, therefore he played well. He was playing well despite our limitations. So that gives me hope that next year or the year after, there can be a guy in this, you know, with enough experience and enough talent to make this offense click. So I, I don't know. That's my hope. And, you know, we can continue to complain about the offense all day. Let's move on. Another bright spot, which we have complained about here on the podcast, special teams. Maybe the best thing going for this team on Saturday. Yeah, great job, Greg Nord. Hats off to Greg Nord. We like to say in the cast that we're, we try not to do anything without an analytical scope or some data to back it up. We don't want to be a show that just rips people because we don't like them. That's not what we try to do. We try to just use the facts, the film, and say, hey, here's what we see. And so Greg Nord early on was catching a lot of flack from us because I think the film indicated that. But really recently, he's been the strong suit of the team. And that was no different on on Saturday. That was by far our best unit 
phenomenal job, essentially really almost a perfect job in, in a rivalry game. And and hats off to him and 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 his staff for improving week to week. Uh, Callaway's it's seemingly frustrating pun issues seem to be behind him now as of recent weeks. And Eddie continues to get better and better as a kicker. Although, of course, you're raising your hand. You're saying, James, Eddie kicked the ball out of bounds twice. Yeah. I don't think you can blame a, a coach for that. That's going to happen from time to time. Especially Eddie, with this inexperienced right. kicker. Eddie's prone to doing that. That's frustrating, but I can't blame a coach for that. So hats off to Greg Norton and the staff. Really, they, they deserve all the respect they should get. It's going to get really overshadowed because of the loss we had. But it, it's important to mention that Johnny Townsend, Probably the best punter in the country, if not one of the two best guys in the country, along right side there with Eddie. And uh, Chris Thompson is really a, a magical special teams player. Yeah, I mean, both those are it was a solid returner, but a really great gunner. Yeah, probably going to play on Sundays as a gunner in the NFL. Good. I think I think he's that good at that job. So so great job by them. It, it was a, it was a highlight night for them, and they they kept us in the game all the way really until the end, thanks to that that uh, fumble there in the fourth quarter. Let me ask you about kind of a controversial moment really early in the game. Gators go the length of the field pretty much, get down to you know the red zone. It's fourth down, about two or three yards. We go for it. Did you like that decision by the coaches? This is a tough question to ask because this is very contextual. Sometimes I would love that, and sometimes I would hate that, and sometimes I would say it's a coin flipped. In this case, the chart says, and I don't care about the chart, but it's important to know for context, the chart says you take the field goal on the road every single time. You take points on the road, and that's what you do. Um, and I understand the logic behind that. The flip side of that says you're going to need more than three points or ten points to win this game. You're down there. Let's score. The logic side of me says I don't mind going for it on fourth down if you're going to line up really quickly and get a tempo play in there, get a set they don't like, get them in a substitution pattern they're not ready for. I like that. But the way we did it, which Florida State had to call timeout, indicating they weren't ready for it. Okay, fine. I don't mind that. Call timeout. Now I'm kicking the field goal. I am not going to march my team back out there when we have one of the worst offenses in college football. We have to go almost a full three yards to score <laughs> in a rivalry game where we have a good defense. It's going to be really exciting to get some points on the board. I am not, after a timeout, marching out there. Now, with all that being said, we had a guy open. It could have been a touchdown, but the reason it's not is because we're not a good offense. <laughs> so all that data being said in the context, I would have much preferred to kick the field goal there and go up three to nothing. There are plenty of games with different situations that I might say the opposite. And that's kind of what I'm trying to articulate here. I don't think that I'm someone who believes you should always kick the field goal there or you should always go for it. But certainly in that situation with the offense that we had and with the play that we ran, which really is putting a lot on Applebee's shoulders, which seems kind of silly given Applebee's not great at making a post-snap read and Florida State knew that, which I blitzed. I don't love it. I don't love that scenario. Do I think it changed the game? No, I don't. I think we still lose. But do I wish to kick the field goal? Yes. I mean, what are your thoughts there? I liked it. I wanted us to do it in the moment, and it didn't work. But you're hopeful that your defense can give you back the ball in a position where you could probably kick a field goal pretty soon. We've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. I'm generally in favor of that. And in this game, I think we needed to score 24 points to win. And we weren't going to do that kicking a million field goals. And, you, you know, Eddie can kick a pretty deep field goal. So it's not like you're only going to get a field goal when you're in close. So I like the aggressiveness. You know, I would have been fine with him kicking the field goal, especially after the timeout. I don't think that would have been a mistake, but I liked him going for it. Well, and one last little note on that, because what you said I think is important. The the EV or the expected value of going for a touchdown when you're inside the five-yard line on fourth down is is about four points. 
And what that means is if you don't get it, odds are you stop the other team, they punt the ball back to you, then you go down and you score a touchdown more often than not. So if you look at that play, technically, if you were to make that decision a thousand times in the course of your career, it's going to be more profitable for you than just kicking the field goal. So the math is on the side of what you're saying. In fact, doing it all the time. Of course, football is a one-time game against one opponent, so you have to kind of measure those out. But either way, good thought. I love that topic of conversation because I think coaches should go for it more as a general rule. We've talked a little bit about Coach McElwain and his like big-picture success. Let me ask you about some other offensive coaches, specifically offensive coordinator Doug Nussmeyer, offensive line coach Summers. What do you, how are you feeling about them at this moment? Are you a part of the group that would like to see them go? Yeah, I touched on Nussmeyer earlier. I just don't think there's enough for us to know. We run a lot on second and 10, which we've heard me say drives me crazy. If you look on film, though, a lot of these plays have open guys. There's places for the ball to go. Um, certainly under Wilger last year, I thought our offense was was very close to starting to function very well. So I'm going to I'm gonna punt on Nussmeyer. I've definitely seen enough from Mike Summers. I understand his resume. I've seen what he's done. I know he's an older guy. The two main reasons that I would part with him this offseason, one, he can't recruit. From what we hear on the inside is they've taken him off the recruiting trail in my opinion, the offensive line is the most important position group on a football team next to the quarterback with the trump card that if you do not have an offensive line, your quarterback cannot be successful. So pick that how you want to. But that is so important for me that if I'm the coach, my number one battle plan is to upgrade that position coach. And two is the data. I like data. We've seen Mike Summers now. I think he's done some decent work in the past. But this offensive line is is beyond poor, in my opinion. The mistakes they make, the consistent level they perform at, which is below average over this two-year period now, I've just seen enough of it. I think we need a fresh face there. I think we need a new reason to believe, and we need a guy that can pull in elite-level recruits on the O-line because we're in the SEC and we face these high-level defensive lines all the time. I just don't buy enough of the excuses from the other side about they're too young, they're too this or too whatever. I think a good coach, like we've seen what Jeff Collins can do, is can get performance out of these guys and just every single week. I put the film on and you just cringe generally what's going on. I also just question some of the the tactical decisions he's made with who's playing where and how he's handling our roster. I would like to see new ideas at that spot. It'll be interesting to see what moves McElwain and the rest of the staff make after the offseason. And thinking about the bigger picture, let's get to our Gator guest, Blake Alderman. And so he's a recruiting expert, but we really wanted to talk to him, not just like who's in the class and what players are thinking about Florida, but really what what's the bigger picture trend of the program? We're moving up or we're moving down in this area. So let's get to that. Thanks to fanessentials.net, we've been able each week to give one of our supporters an opportunity to cash in on some free swag, courtesy of fanessentials.net. Last week, we asked you to go ahead and like our Facebook page, and everyone that had liked it as a new like was eligible. Thanks to Alan pulling out the random number generator, Darren Goldstein. Darren Goldstein is our winner. Congratulations, Darren. All you need to do is contact the show via Facebook, and we'll tell you how to pick up your free swag from fanessentials.net. This week, we'll go back to an oldie but a goodie. Go ahead and retweet the show on Twitter for a chance to win next week some fanessentials.net swag. What is fanessentials.net? As you longtime listeners know, it's a great way to get access to professional merchandise of your favorite professional sports teams. You go to fanessentials.net, you subscribe, and then each month you get a box of different goods and swag from your favorite team. It makes for a great gift this time of year. You can sign up for one month, three months, six months, a year, whatever it is you please. If you choose to subscribe, 
simply go ahead and put the code GATERS in and you'll get 30% off your subscription. We are joined again by one of our favorite guests, Blake Alderman. He's a recruiting analyst for InsideTheGators.com. Thanks for being on today, Blake. Man, you just built me up. That makes me feel real good in there. One of your favorite guests. I guess I should just get a little gold star. That's pretty cool, ain't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> that was a good McElwain. I like that. Um, so I'm just jumping in and ask you, what is our, our 2017 recruiting class looking like right now? You know, right now, I, I would say that if I could go ahead and just throw it out here now, if I had the one negative against it, I think there's a little bit of a lack of instant impact guys, you know, guys that are elite, you know, that's what the term they use, guys that are going to come in and really make a, uh, an impact on day one. I think there's a lot of good players, and from following McElwain's classes in the past, I think the thing that at this stage it's hard to see is, you know, the, the three stars and, and whatnot are in there. Um you know, under McElwain, you know, you could even argue that some of these three-star guys have outplayed their ranking in high school. So, you know, there's always that. But that's a to-be-determined kind of thing. Overall, I think they've addressed some needs. There's some needs to tackle with Fred Hansard flipping. Uh, there's obviously a need there. Could obviously use a couple more cornerbacks with them looking to take such a deep class. And you can never have enough offensive tackles and offensive linemen in the SEC. So those would really be kind of the needs right there that they need to address as far as on the recruiting uh, trail. I think if you're going to take another quarterback, I think it needs to be one of a, a graduate transfer or a guy that you can land through the transfer. I don't think there's a guy that jumps out to me that they can take in the 2017 class as a high school guy along with Jake Allen. So, you know, I think that they've done a pretty good job so far uh, on rivals rankings. They have them uh, ranked 25th, but it's much higher if you do the star average. It's up there. I think it was around 11 or 12 last time I looked. So, you know, there's a lot to like about this class, but obviously they, there's still some big needs and some big fish that they really do need to land in this class. So you mentioned Fred Hansard, four-star defensive tackle decommitting yesterday. Do you feel like this tra- this class is trending up or trending down? And do you see it possibly finishing in the top 10? You know, I don't I, – right now, if I just had to completely just kind of go off my gut, top 10, I'd say probably not. Uh, they're sitting somewhere around 25th uh, in the rivals' rankings at least. Um, trending up and down, you know, I don't think it's trending down but I don't think it's trending up. So really the way to say it is just it's kind of stagnant right now. You know, it's just kind of sitting there. Um, a lot of guys are kind of waiting to see. Um, obviously, McElwain has really hit on early enrollees, those guys getting those guys in since he's been there. That's really his focal point there. So, you know, I think right now that's kind of where they're looking at is to get these guys in early, keep the guys they have committed. And then once the dead period finishes up, that's when you really start to kind of do that final push for those guys in those, you know, the January, late January months leading all the way up to signing day. So one of the primary reasons we wanted to have this recruiting discussion today was to zoom out and talk more about the strategy of where McIlwain is overall as a coach and recruiting is a large part of that, especially when you look at some data that seems to indicate that to win an SEC title and a national championship, you need a certain percentage of top 100 players or top 150 players that Florida does not have right now. In fact, there hasn't been a team outside of Auburn that's won an SEC title and a national title without signing a top five class within a four-year window to win. How Right now, how is McIlwain recruiting compared to his predecessors that coached at Florida? You know, I think it's a little bit of a hard thing to compare to. You know, I, I think when you look at guys like Urban Meyer and Will Muschamp, those were guys that were really good recruiters. You know, I mean, Urban Meyer, in my book, is is the best, if not one of the best, uh, recruiters in college football right now. The guy just, I mean, he, he's amazing at his job, you know, as far as recruiting, you know, and coaching, whatnot. I mean, Florida fans know, you know, I mean, they were part of the, you know, the top classes and whatnot. And 
you know, I think Muschamp did a lot too, but, you know, I think the thing that really like sticks out to me if I look at it is yes, McIlwain's classes aren't compared uh, as, as highly ranked as some of those guys that you said, the predecessors and whatnot. But I think when you look at a lot of these guys that they've, he's recruited um, that had been thrown in the fire early, if not for, uh, you know, just having high play or having an injury in front of them. I think a lot of these guys that he's recruited have played very well. You know, I, I think that's one thing that I will give McIlwain. I don't think he's in the same tier as some of these guys who have recruited at Florida before, but I do think that his, his overall eye for talent, I think, is one of the best. And, you know, I think that some of these guys he finds, you know, looking into it, you know, you don't think, uh, you know, a guy like three-star LaMichael Pirine is going to be doing what he does now. You know, guys like Sean Joseph, you know, th- these guys that he's brought in that, you know, weren't really highly recruited and, you know, weren't, you know, didn't have all the stars next to their name. That's the one thing I could see with him is, you know, yeah, the recruiting isn't, doesn't have as much buzz as some of these guys before, but I still think at the same level, the talent he's bringing in is still pretty good. Yeah, they've definitely been contributing, but like we said, that data is is still damning in one respect because no one's been able to sure. bring in I mean, enough think, too, talent. You know, playing against a team like Alabama, you know, that, that's, they get five stars by the regular. And I mean, that, that's a recruiting machine. And, you know, they're always going to be in contention for a national championship. They're always going to be in contention for the SEC championship game. The thing is now is, is can the rest of the SEC beat Alabama? They, it, 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 I don't see a lot of teams recruiting at the same level as Alabama. Like I said, they're a machine. So it's really they, – they almost have like a monopoly on the SEC in college football. I mean, they're bringing in five-star guys to replace five-star guys. I mean, it's insane. Looking at their defense this year and the guys they're still bringing in and you know, I mean, man, it's, it's pretty crazy to see what Nick Saban's doing there. It really is. It is. It is a machine. Looking at other programs that we can compare ourselves to, Miami, Georgia, several other SEC schools, Tennessee, maybe other outside programs, Washington, Clemson. On a lot of those cases, those coaches come in and they outperform their previous recruiting profile. So at Washington, Peterson hasn't signed top five classes, but he's been able to sign classes that historically are better than what Washington has brought in. Same thing for Dabo Sweeney at Clemson. Is McElwain at a point here in year two turning to year three when we look at the national landscape that he's essentially fallen behind what a coach at a school like Florida should be doing when we look at other programs that are successful? Or is there a case for him to say, hey, this isn't necessarily a cause for a concern for him not to be able to build the program to an elite level? You know, I think there's arguments on both sides. You know, I think if you look at guys like Chris Peterson, Dabo Sweeney, you know, I'm not really too familiar with Chris Peterson just from being out there. But, you know, he's a, he's a big, highly regarded name. You know, he's one of the, you know, the top guys. You know, it feels like every coaching opening that opens up, Chris Peterson is on that list. Dabo Sweeney arguably is one of those top guys, like I said, recruiting-wise. You know, you look at the things that Clemson has, you know, their standalone football facility they're just building. I don't know if you guys have seen the videos for it, but, I mean, it's, it's crazy all the things they have there. So, you know, there's a lot of things that Florida is catching up there, yes. But I think when you look at McIlwain, I I think it's hard to compare him to some of these guys that were there before. But at the same time, too, I think where the program was, you know, where he inherited it, I don't think it's necessarily trending upward, but it's one of those things where it's, you know, Rome isn't built in the day kind of thing. You know, I think that you're seeing what he's building. He's bringing in some of these IPFs. You know, some of these young guys are being baptized early by the fire, you know, throwing them in there early. So, you know, I, I think compared to a lot of these other guys, you know, these are guys you're comparing that, you know, are some of the big top recruiters in, in college football. So, you know, I, I think it's tough, and I can see arguments on both sides. But, you know, I, I think recruiting obviously is a step, you know, it's where your foundation of your program is built. And I think that Florida definitely does need to put a little bit need, – needs to get better there. You know, they need to improve. But I also think, too, that, you know, from what I've seen, a lot of these guys that he's recruited and brought in, 
you know, that they seem to be playing pretty good for, you know, for their lack of ranking. Let me ask you this. So the Gators have had a kind of an up and down last couple of weeks, you know, big road win against LSU winning the East and then coming out and losing um, pretty decisively to FSU. How much does something like a road win against LSU help and a loss against an in-state rival like FSU hurt? You know, I think a big win like that is always, you know, it's always a plus. You know, a lot of kids were tuned into that game. I think when you see the fact that they almost fought before the game, this, you know, crazy fourth down goal line stand, you know, those things definitely are things that recruits key on and get excited about. But at the same time, the state of Florida is where all colleges around the country, they want to come in and try to pluck these guys away. Clemson's been able to do it. Alabama has been able to do it. Other than that, it feels like Florida State kind of has that grasp on a lot of these top kids. I mean, when you look at how much they've beaten up on Florida and they've beaten up on Miami these last couple of years, it's almost kind of a thing when you see a top kid get ready to kind of put that final top three, top five, whatever out there. Florida State's usually in there for contention. It feels like, you know, yes, it was great to clinch the East and, and beat LSU on the road like that, but at the same time, you're going to have to start beating your in-state rival. You know, there's things that are going to start registering with these kids. You know, that, that's how you win your state is by beating them. And, you know, I think it's – you see Florida during the season, they kind of get some momentum built up, and then that end of the season hits, and it almost just like completely just cancels out everything. Because when you look at now, wherever you have the contact period open up and coaches are going in home and they're going by schools and everything, this is really what kids remember. They remember how you finish. They remember – exactly what these coaches are telling them all the negative recruiting going around so it's almost how you finish is what these kids remember it's like you know a short attention span i remember myself when i was 17 16 you know i i really didn't pay attention to a lot of things that i should so it's almost like how you finish is what these kids really remember yeah and speaking of that getting in the mind of a 17 or 18 year old if that's possible if you could give me three <laughs> things and think of this like an allocation so where you're going to give a percentage to each one and i know it can't be precise but this might help visually for us to imagine what the answer to this question is, what are the three things you would say in general recruits are looking for in a program? And give me the allocations on how that would be. You know, I think playing time is probably the biggest thing. I would say that's probably 50% of what they look for is, is early playing time. How, it, how quickly can I make an impact with your program? How quickly am I going to see the field? Because you see kids now, you know, it's not a four-year decision anymore. It, it's a three-year Am I going to go to the league? Am I not? If I don't get this, I'm going to transfer somewhere else. I think that's where you see a lot of recruits now. I think a lot of kids now don't like to play football. They like to be recruited. You know, they like that. But whenever you have a school that's pitching early playing time, that seems to be the thing that stands out for most of some of these kids. Um, obviously, your program's tradition, I would say, is probably at 25% there. The direction of your program, wins and losses, you know, where have you come from there, and, uh, you know, finally, I would say the last thing is, is relationships with the coaches. You know, I know a lot of these kids say, oh, you know, I'm not recruiting to a school. I'm, or, excuse me, I'm not recruiting to a staff. I'm recruiting to a school. Um, I, I think that's kind of a lie sometimes, you know, just like a kid saying education is the thing they want. You know, I just – I don't really buy that, um, especially when you have kids that are there three years and going to the league. Um, but, you know, I think relationships has another part into it too because, I mean, look at Byron Coward a couple years ago. He was all Florida – Muschamp leaves and goes to Auburn, he goes there. So I think that those would probably be the three things. If I had to just think, those would be it. But obviously, playing time, to me, seems like the thing where the kids uh, really key on. So if there's anything that's holding UF back as a program in terms of recruiting, what would you say that is? Uh, you know, if I really had to say, I, I think that a lot of these coaches out there now have kind of that killer instinct. You know, when they're on the visit, they're really pushing kids to make a decision. 
you know, flip now or commit now or, you know, we need you now. Whereas I think Florida sometimes likes to let the kid make their decision, kind of let things play out instead of putting a kid on spot. You know, I, I've heard much, or excuse me, McElwain say in, in press conferences and, and whatnot, you know, we want kids that want to be Gators. And, you know, I think that that would probably be the thing is to where, you know, they really kind of let a kid play out his recruitment instead of just going for a commitment now, which, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And I think that's where you're kind of seeing things now. You let a kid continue to take visits, he could commit to another school. Um, or, you know, if you don't push there, uh, you know, you might miss out on a kid because another you know school could. I think Nick Eubanks, the tight end last year, is one that really kind of sticks out. He visited Michigan, had his Florida visit planned for after, and really got sold on the visit. I, I know uh, Jim Harbaugh is one of those guys that likes to, you know, really try to get a commitment and push for it. Committed to Michigan on his visit, never made the Florida visit. So, you know, I think that that can happen there. But on the other side, too, you know, let's say Florida pushes for a kid to commit. Well, the kid takes visits anyways and can still flip because he wasn't all in and, you know, didn't want to be a Gator. He wanted to, you know, take some visits and, and kind of ride the, the visit high. You know, did some of these kids get caught up on these visits? And I think that's where you see a lot of things there. You know, if I had to say the one thing that where the staff is really kind of lack there is it's that killer instinct to get a kid to, you know, let's get him on board now instead of let's let him take some visits and see how it plays out. All right. Let's just throw aside the coaching and all the things in the field and look at this one isolated incident here as our last question. In your opinion, do you think McIlwain will be able to recruit well enough to have the Gators consistently competing for an SEC title and then the, you know, every three year or so national championship? You know, I do. I do think so. You know, I think that when you look at it now, the 2015 class he got there, it was like end of December, beginning of January, something like that didn't really have a lot of time to build those relationships with these kids and kind of get his foot in the, uh, completely get his foot in the door there. Still signed a pretty good class. You know, you got the CCs and the Martez Ivies and all those guys. But then you look at the next year and into you know, now where it's 2016 and, and even in 2017, they were still kind of behind. You know, you see kids commit so early now, it's always harder to flip a kid than to land his commitment if he's uncommitted. That's the thing. And a lot of these kids committing so early now, um, you know, really getting offers now in their ninth grade year. I mean, even some kids now, it's insane. Eighth graders get offer from LSU, USC, whatever, whatnot. Now it's where it's coming into 2018. This is really the first class to where McElwain and the rest of the staff is on a complete level playing field as far as Florida was the first to offer this kid. Florida was really early in the process here, and it's not so much playing catch-up now. It's not so much getting to know the staff and building the relationship now. Florida was in there early, and I think that's where you're going to start to see things improve. Obviously, it's a hard schedule next season, so, you know, it, it's kind of a gamble there. But, you know, I, I think if they do, you know, if they come out and put something together there, you know, with the relationships mixed there and all the things that McElwain's doing on campus, I do think that he can write the ship there and really start to see kind of an uptick in their recruitment. He is Blake Alderman of InsideTheGators.com, a recruiting analyst, one of, as Alan said, our favorite guests. Thanks so much for the insight, Blake. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah, anytime. It's SEC Roundup time. Let's do it. First game up. (laughs) Laughing a little bit here. Arkansas 24, Missouri 28. What happened there? I don't know. Like how? That's all I can think of. We've dogged Missouri consistently. The SEC this year is is a perplexing mixture of things. Everybody's going to finish 8-4, and four, I think. And and Arkansas, yeah, right? Arkansas is maybe the most perplexing. That is a bad loss, is the bottom line. Bad loss. They were ahead in that game. They blew it. Good for Missouri. Good for, for, good for Barry Odom. 
another maybe weird score. LSU 54, Texas A&M 39. That feels like so far above the expected over-under for me. Texas A&M going off a cliff here. Yeah, LSU crushed them. That, that score was not that close. LSU was up like 34 to 10 or 14. Or I don't even know what it was. It was game, set, match, and then things got crazy <laughs> in the end of that game. But uh, certainly with the hiring of Ed O there now, people are really excited about maybe the offense. I don't know what to think about that. But A&M, another swan dive from Sumlin at the end of a season. Yeah. Well, maybe the most surprising, the pride of the SEC East, Kentucky – 41, Louisville 38. Free fall. Another free fall for Petrino. What a way to end the season. Like you think to yourself, we got everything in front of us. We're the we're the we're gonna get in the playoff. All we have to do is beat Houston, who hasn't looked so good, and then Kentucky, and you lose both of those games. <laughs> Kentucky and Mark Stoops, we talked about on this very podcast. We put him on the hot seat before the season, and he he has gotten himself off the hot seat. And those recruits Indeed. he had, the talent that he has, the guys we talked about that were there, the reason we were afraid of Kentucky potentially beating us in game two of the year was was valid. I feel like that was very valid. Our fear was valid. But huge, huge win for that program. Yeah, big time win. I can't I mean, I was shocked by that. Another score that's mildly surprising. Another feather in the cap for Paul Johnson against their rival Georgia. So Georgia Tech twenty eight, Georgia twenty seven. Let me ask Georgia, did you keep the receipt on Kirby Smart? Can you still exchange him back for Mark Rick? We talked about how the, the bonfire had a little bit of rain on it a few weeks ago. And it, that rain is gone now. The sun has shined on it. The wood is drying out. <laughs> and uh, the, the matches aren't lit. But either way, the wood is dry is the bottom line. And I think there's, I think people are so sick of Mark Rick that they don't know what to think. But I think Georgia fans are, are openly just wondering maybe who they really are. That that's a 27 to 14 lead in that game with six minutes and 30 seconds left. And as a Georgia fan, you're thinking, great. Next season can't come soon enough. Kirby's going to get it done. We're going to beat our rival. And they blow it epically. Blow it. And Kirby's a defensive guy. And it, it, just weird, just you know, they're, weird stuff. There are a couple losses away here. I mean, they're, we talked about almost lost Nickel State. Shouldn't have lost the, I mean, shouldn't have beaten Auburn probably. That was a big win for them, but Auburn should have won that game. So I don't know. Yeah, should have lost to Missouri. Fourth yeah, down conversion there. That's true. Speaking of Auburn, Auburn 12, Alabama 30, Iron Bowl crushing. You've said this best all along. If Auburn had Sean White and Pedway, that might have been a really close game. Auburn got down there in the red zone quite a few times, kicked a bunch of field goals, which is not how you can beat Alabama most of the time. Uh, intriguing game for a while. Like most Bama games, if you just see the score, you think they crushed them from start to finish. But that's not the way it was. It was a fun competitive game for a good portion of it. <laughs> Mississippi State, 55. I'm laughing at all these scores. They're so weird. Ole Miss, 20. Egg Bowl. The Fighting Dan Mullins just crush, blow up Ole Miss. That's a tough year for Hugh Freeze and the Rebels. Really tough year. My main takeaway from this is a guy that I just did not think was going to be a good head coach, Dan Mullen. I openly said that. I'm going to eat public crow. I could just pretend like I never said that because most of you don't know I said that. But I said that, and I'm going to put it out there now. He's a good coach. There's no other way around it. That team got better and better every single week. It's a super young team, and, and that is a huge. Don't let that. Don't fall asleep on that. That's a huge achievement for them. Ole Miss was a top fifteen team preseason. A lot of people thought they could be a dark horse in the playoffs, and Mississippi State just crushing their rival like that yeah. ends, like you said, a tumultuous and horrific season for Hugh Freeze. I mean, I think the quarterback for Mississippi State, Fitzgerald, I believe his name is, two hundred and fifty something rushing yards or something like that. Crazy. <laughs> I'm laughing every time at these. The Fighting Must Champs 7, Clemson 56, rivalry game, you know, not the way they want that to go. 
Clemson finally maybe shows up like we, their fans want them to. Yeah, it feels like Clemson is ready now to play in the playoffs. They've had a lot of weird results. They've had some bad games. This is a very, very dangerous team that has been underachieving, mainly filled with uh, half their team essentially returned from last year, guys that have a lot of experience. You wonder if they're going to do what teams in the NHL do where they kind of wait for the playoffs and they turn it on. It certainly looked like it in that South Carolina game. That was a demolition. Yeah, not even that close, really. Tennessee 34, Vanderbilt 45. Big win for Derek Mason. So coaches that we were ready to fire early in the season, maybe not us, are their fan base is Mark Stoops and Derek Mason leading their programs to big victories at the end here. Yeah, and best result of the week. Yeah. I mean, just tons of fun. First of all, I don't know if you guys saw it, but Derek Mason was wearing a half vest. Like he tucked his jacket vest, which was like a life preserver in somehow. I don't know what it was, but it looked like he was wearing this little kid's life vest on the sideline, which was he's great. He's afraid he was going to drown on the sideline. And then he's running around with his life vest at the end of the game, like dancing and going crazy. And I mean, it was a surreal scene, but seriously, it's really hard to go six and six at Vanderbilt. Really, really difficult. We talked about that this week with our Vanderbilt guests. I mean, not this week, this year. That's a big accomplishment, and beating Tennessee, a, te- a Tennessee team that was preseason ranked top 10, was supposed to win the East, was supposed to be a playoff contender. That's a huge, huge win for Vanderbilt, and and obviously equally demoralizing for the Champions of Life. The Champions of Life, Tennessee, do they have to give over that Champions of Life trophy to Vanderbilt now? I don't know. But if you're Tennessee, I mean, what are you doing right now? Do you have to fire Butch Jones? I feel like you do. Even though I don't have the athletic director, I feel like you have to fire him. This is an inexplicable season from them, considering the talent they had and they're supposed to be peaking. Yeah, that's not a good look for them. And the way it ended, it was very fitting. Alvin Kamara catches a flats pass and runs out of bounds on fourth down and then puts his hands on his helmet because they're not well coached. No. Now, if Les Miles is available and you're a Tennessee fan, <laughs> do you take him? You have to, I right? don't know. Maybe. I would in a second. Anyway, sidebar. But I would in a second. I would be going after Les Miles so hard right now if I was Tennessee. Okay. Let's turn our attention to this game. It's the SEC championship game that Florida's playing in for the second year in a row. Let's look at the opponent. Maybe the the best team in America, maybe the best team ever, seemingly, Alabama. Give us a little primer on them, James. Well, yeah, anyone that says they're the best team ever is making stuff up, and we'll talk about that later. Defense, really, really good. Offense, I have a lot of questions about it, even though their stats look good. But the stats primer, here's really all that you need to know. And, and this is maybe the easiest one that I've ever had to do. But they are better than us in almost every single category, both offensively and defensively. The few exceptions, we have a better kicker. Percentage-wise, that's something there. We have a slightly better turnover margin. We force just a hair more turnovers than they do. So there you go. That's us in the win column. And we also allow fewer <laughs> pass yards per game, a slightly better completion percentage against opponents, and we get a few more interceptions. Outside of that, they're better than us in every single category. So try to find the matchup that you like in this game. You know, good it's luck. Tough. I dare you. <laughs> well, the big question that people are asking, is there any way we can win this game? No. We could play this game 10 times and we're not going to win this game. Is what I'm going to say using what about using times? the stats. Yeah, yeah, right, 100 times. Yeah, but hold on, hold on, wait, pause, the, pause, hold the phone. The answer is yes, because it's college football and crazy things happen, even against Nick Saban's team. So, of course, the answer is yes. You can't say it's a 0% chance. 
But statistically and film study wise, it's about as close to a zero percent chance as you can get, given the circumstances each of these teams face currently and their respective situations. But certainly there is a world, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute in the film study world, where you could do it. There is a blueprint. It is possible as to whether or not we will is an entirely different situation. What about if we were healthy? If this was a healthy Gator team on offense and defense, well, I guess especially defense, would that matter? I would think it would matter a lot, and I would think we'd become like what I would consider to be a dark horse. I imagine the spread would be maybe 17 points if we were healthy, which might seem crazy to a lot of you fans out there. Wait a minute, James, all the Sutters are back. I think it'd probably still be 17 or so. I do think there would be plenty of narratives I could create where we could beat them in a game that would be very low scoring that would depend upon a fluke turnover or or a special teams touchdown or something like that. So yes, it would make a big difference in my mind as to how we could compete with them given what I've seen on film. Yeah, that would be interesting because I think a defense at its peak with all of our best players available could shut down this Alabama offense for most of the game. And if they play really well and Alabama doesn't play well on offense... We have a very like LSU 10 nothing kind of game where, yeah, a weird thing happens. All of a sudden you're winning the game. But it doesn't feel like there's a lot, <laughs> at least at this point, that the Gators have to offer in this game. Now, when you looked at Alabama on film, what are the things that jumped out at you? Well, we'll talk about their defense first because that's, that's the simplest version. Alabama's defense is, is so good at every position because they really don't have to do anything special. They can line up in their base defense and they can run what you consider to be very vanilla or I'll call it NFL style defense uh, where you line up in a, in a 4-3, you line up in a nickel, you line up in a 5-2 and you just run it because you're superior athletically across the board. So they don't have to rely on anything really confusing or anything really crazy. They line up and make you beat them. They're going to play tight to the line. They're going to make you throw the ball in tight windows. And I think Nick Saban's very well aware that in the NFL, quarterbacks can succeed against that kind of defense. But in college, very, very rare that you get a guy that can beat that kind of defense. On the offensive side of the ball, it's a lot more interesting. There's a lot of ways to attack Alabama that I think a healthy Gator team would have been successful at. I think even a, a our scenario, tie our hand behind our back team this week, playing them on defense could exploit. And if you look at the LSU game, which is the best recipe for stopping Alabama, and it's there, several things stick out. One, you're going to have to press their wide receivers on almost every single play. Do not let them get a clean release. And number two, you're going to need to be comfortable being very aggressive up front and in the underneath flat routes. Bama's offense is predicated on attacking the flats. They're trying to attack the flats with either their tight ends, uh, with their slot receivers or their running backs, or with the zone read run. You have to, have to, have to stop that. LSU was able to do that primarily using their 3-4 defense and a lot of nickel pressures. So think the same thing Florida State did against us. A lot of edge pressures from the nickelbacks. You have got to take away the edge. And even in that game, the only big plays LSU gave up were really Jalen Hurts running. Yeah. They could not effectively pass the ball downfield. Jalen Hurts is not a vertical passer. If you're thinking, oh, wow, he's had some nice games where he's passed the ball to move the ball a lot, I'll give you this. He's passed for 158, 156, 164, 107, and 136. That's half of his games in his passing totals against a variety of opponents, Tennessee, Old Miss, certainly LSU. When you watch him on film, that doesn't concern you. His passing doesn't really concern you. But I don't know anymore with the front that we have that we're going to be able to really realistically stop Alabama's primary zone read. And if you don't stop their zone read, then the passing becomes open. Yeah, this is not the typical Alabama offense that they've run in the past with kind of a limited quarterback, whether you're thinking maybe the best version of that is A.J. McCarron or Greg McElroy or last year with 
um, Coker, they run completely different stuff. And they're effective at it, especially as the game goes along. They start to wear you down. Those downhill runs with Bo Scarborough and you know their legion of running backs start to you know really move the pile and collect yardage. But Jalen Hurts running is really where it scares you. And anytime they want to unleash that, it feels like that's where they're going to make their money. And he can't throw the ball. He throws a nice ball downfield. But they don't ask him to be accurate throwing the ball over the field. So, you know, like you said, in a perfect world where we have everyone available, we could do some things, certainly. I don't think our linebackers are going to be capable of slowing down the Alabama rushing attack. You know, they're... They're dynamic in a different way than LSU was, but still, I mean, excuse me, FSU, but still like very dangerous. Um, yeah, when you watch them, they're punishing. I mean, it's like a boa constrictor. They get, and the game might start slow, they just squeeze the life out of you by the third quarter. And so, I, and they're not going to make mistakes either. They rarely make mistakes on offense. They just won't let Jalen Hurts do that. I mean, a couple times, you know, he's still a freshman, he still does some things, but in general, they put him in a position to succeed. And I, it's hard to envision us slowing them down for the whole game. Yeah, it, it definitely is. In the LSU game, they they really answered LSU's conservatism with their own conservatism. They just ran the ball like a million times. And they occasionally yeah. would throw some simple flat routes. But most of what Jalen Hurts does is very high school level passing. It's one of the reasons why I really dislike the spread option is I feel like it's it's a when you have equal athletes, it's not a hard offense to stop, which I think has been proven this year. One thing I want... I want the listeners and you guys out there to really understand is the second best offense under Saban happened in 2012, which was Bama's other best defense. Statistically, they averaged a shade under 39 points a game. This team is averaging a bit over 39 or around 40. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think most of this team's offensive success feeds off how incredibly dominant their defense is. And it's like you said, with that boa constrictor mentality, I don't think you could transplant this offense and put it to a team that has an average defense and watch them be super successful. There's so many things they just can't do, which is why that goes back to my original tip of the cap when I said, hey, there are ways on film when you watch this offense and think we can compete with these guys. We can make some stops. We can make this game a close scoring game for a while. And you have seen that. Chattanooga did it. Auburn did it for the first half. A lot of teams do it for a while. But then eventually, enough of your three and outs get you in trouble. The field position gets you in trouble. Your defense wears out. It's very demanding to stop the zone read for an entire game. Because if you make one mistake, they get a 30 or 40-yard gain. And it's soul-crushing when you're playing defense to make one mistake in a long game and have that be your punishment. And that's kind of what they do. So the real problem we have, and this is not a surprise to anyone, is that this is a Bama defense that has not given up a touchdown since October 22nd. Which is crazy. And this is a Florida offense that two years in a row now has just belly flopped to the end. Uh, not scoring points. If you look at our momentum trends, it's just cascading downward on offense. Everything about it's bad. And you say, how could we possibly score points on them? Yeah. Which feels a lot like last year. That's the sickening part about it, is we're one year later... I don't know that it really feels much different than it no, felt no, last it feels year. like it has to be a similar kind of game where we do really weird stuff. There's some special teams. Is there anything unorthodox we could do, especially on offense, that might give them a little bit of trouble? Well, McElwain joked he's going to put the wishbone in, which is <laughs> what my high school ran. Uh, and so you could try that. But on tape, no. It's a really bad matchup for us, given how we want to do things. I do think our offense is something that, that we will always have guys running open at some point in time. We run a good scheme. It's there. But we have yet to prove we can hit them. 
Against Bama, they're going to let you hit deep vertical passes. So you always have the awareness that Applebee can throw the deep ball. And at Florida State, he couldn't. At Tennessee, he could. In the LSU game, he did. So Bama will let you have that. They'll play that underneath aggressive style. Um, they don't run a 3-4, which Applebee's been much better and less confused against than, than other lineups. They don't necessarily blitz a lot, which we saw that that he really struggled against Florida State's incredibly you know pressure-oriented package. I don't know that Bama's going to take Florida State's game plan, though, because Saban doesn't like to blitz like that as much. So I don't see anything that jumps out. It, it feels like something that, that's, that you're saying, ooh, what do we do? But the best thing we could do is have one of our scripted series that ends in a touchdown because 7 nothing is going to make our team feel pretty good. Um, and if that were to happen, get the ball first, go up 7 nothing, play some good defense, even with all the injuries that we have, maybe you live in an alternative world where magic happens. But that seems to be incredibly hopeful. Yeah, that's very wishful thinking. It's almost like a miracle kind of game, which of course is possible. It's college football. They could fumble every other play, you know. But we usually talk right now about keys to victory. Doesn't seem to be a ton of them. Um, I don't even know how I want to ask this. There's a 24 point game, 24 point spread on this game. What are the odds you think we cover this? Ooh, you know, slim, slim odds. I think this. So you're expecting a blowout. Yes, but it feels like one of those slow grinder games that they they bama you out. If we were, if let's put it this way, if we were not injured and the spread was seventeen, I would think it's within that spread. Confidently, I would feel good about that. If there's one thing about Appleby, he doesn't really throw picks, which is weird. He doesn't though. He's fumbled the ball last game, and that was a silly play. But he doesn't really give you like a free pick six or like a freebie scenario too often. And that's helpful against Bama's defense. But in the world we live in now, it this feels like a game with all the injuries that we have, with all the excuses we have our players are going to be able to make. Bama gets up 14 nothing, the vice grip goes, and it's just sort of like, you know, hey, we're out of this thing. Let's just pack it in. And, and we've, we competed. We competed last year much harder than I thought we would. But this just seems like a recipe for, for true disaster. Yeah, I'm going to take Bama in this one. Like, and I don't mean just to win, obviously. I mean, and the, and the point, so... So larger than 24 for me. And that that's a big spread for a, a title game. It's a really big spread. But Bama's been having these huge spreads, and they've been covering them for the most part. So I don't know. Do you want to put a score number on there? I do. And I want to say that there is a world where this game could be close. Maybe like what Chattanooga did. Maybe we lose 21-3. to three. I think that's possible. 21-10 with a special team score. In reality, I think this game looks a lot like the Florida State game, just with a better team than Florida State. And that's where my final score of of uh, 34-6 to six comes into play, is that I think they're just better than Florida State. And Florida State dominated us in most phases of the game. And I see something similar happening. Uh, could be close for a while. Could even be 10-6 for a while. Who knows? But I'm going to go 34-6 Bama, which if you're doing the math on that... <laughs> is the Gators actually covering. Um, so I guess I'm going back on what I just said. So maybe I need to amend my, my previous comments, but 34-6, Gators, Gators cover. Go Gators. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Um, I literally just wrote down 34-6. I don't know if you just looked at that and then said that. I don't think you did, but that's hilarious. That That's what I'm thinking. And then I thought, then they got to cover. So I'm going to bump it up to 40-6. to six. That's a beating I like that though. I like that. I literally, I'm laughing that that at least you quickly recognized. As I was saying it, I was like, "Wait a minute, James. That doesn't. You just said no, and here I am. But I'm going to stick with it because why not? That's how I feel about this game. I, I don't know what to think other than it's going to be bad. 
It, it is going to be bad, probably. Avert your eyes, Gator fans. If you're going to the game, good luck. I wish you the best. Okay. This is what we usually close off the segment here. Let me ask you a bigger picture question. We've now won the SEC East two years in a row. That's an accomplishment in any kind of setting. But the way we've ended the season, you know, seemingly with our heads on the chopping block, you know, executioner style heading into this one, what does that feel like it's worth to you? Does it feel like a valuable accomplishment? Given my visceral reaction to McElwain on the Monday press conference when he ended it by saying, hey, one of the reasons I was hired was to get to Atlanta, and I've done that two years in a row with like a little smug, like I'm batting a thousand kind of look on his face. It doesn't feel that good because I don't feel like we hired him to get to Atlanta. I feel like we hired a Gator coach to win in Atlanta. So it feels like you're in a beauty contest and you're not the best looking girl. You're not the second best looking girl. You're probably even the fourth or fifth best looking girl. But you're in some weird, bizarro division where you, by default, get to play against the best-looking team. It doesn't feel like an award, but it is an extra game. And you cannot say enough about the importance of more practices and extra games for young players. So if we are going to assume that McIlwain is a good program builder, this is actually really important. So from that standpoint, it does mean something. The perception of us getting waxed on national television for recruits, that's the flip side of it. That also could potentially mean something. Well, playing in this game is important, I think. And it, uh, you know, let's take it where we're not in this game. And it's like, well, McElwain couldn't win the East in a down year. That doesn't look good on him. So I think it is an accomplishment. I do want to celebrate that because, you know, we hadn't won the East in a while up until last year. So um, that's good. That I want to say, like, if you're on the team, you should feel good about that. I think the problem is... You know, losing to Alabama is not embarrassing anybody. But heading into last year's game and this year's game, I feel like we have zero chance to win the game feels strange. Last year, he's like, okay, first year, oh, that's kind of fun. This year feels less of an accomplishment because it feels like we're reading the same story again. But big, bigger picture, zoom out. Congratulations to the team for winning the East two years in a row. I think it is an accomplishment. Next, we're going to have a, a fun segment with a Bama fan, one of Alan's good friends. The reason we chose a fan this week is we felt like it'd be good to hear about the culture of Alabama, what it's like to really be an Alabama fan at this current time, and just get an idea of the feelings associated with with sort of the dominance that Bama's had uh, around this game, as well as get an inside scoop on some things in the Bama program that are interesting nationally, oh, like Lane Kiffin. And so who better than one of Alan's insider sources to be able to give us the scoop? We are joined now by my good friend, Jeff Norris, Alabama grad, Alabama super fan. Jeff, thanks for being on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm just, yeah, let me ask first, what's it like being an Alabama fan? Oh, man, uh, it's the greatest thing in the world, obviously, Uh you know, I've been a Bama fan my whole life. My dad played at Alabama in the early 70s under Coach Bryant. And um, then I married into a family where my wife's dad played for Alabama as well under Coach Bryant. And um, and then went to school there. And uh, my sister and my grandparents and um, cousins and aunt and uncles, we've all gone to Alabama. So it runs really deep in our family. And um so we have – I've – right now it's really good to be an Alabama fan, um, clearly, since we've 
won four out of seven national championships and all that great stuff. But we, man, I, it wasn't too long ago that it was, I was in college during the four years of Mike Dubos and, um, uh, those were some rough years. So it wasn't always what it is now. And of course, then we weathered the Shula years and, um, but, uh, these last 10 have been really good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we're spoiled brats, honestly. Um, we, we, uh, we expect to win every single time we take the field and, um, you know, you get on our message boards now and, and we're complaining about things that, a few years back, we would have just been delighted to have, and now we're complaining if we, you know, if we don't do it just absolutely perfectly or if we're only leading by three points at half or something like that. We're, we're, it's like the world's falling apart. So um, so anyway, it's uh, it's good to be a Bama fan, but we uh, any any uh, any sane Alabama fan would say, man, we got it so good that we, we probably don't realize how good we have it. So Florida just finished up a game against our arch rival Florida State. You guys just played the in the Iron Bowl against Auburn. Is that blood feud as real as it seems from the outside? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Um, we we absolutely uh, detest Auburn, and uh, they detest us. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely for for people that move into the rivalry from out of state. Uh, they don't they don't feel it as deeply as those who grew up in the state. Um, haven't grown up in Alabama. It's just it's really um, it's probably probably it it sometimes it's it's not healthy. It's it's beyond intense. Um, um, my kids. One of the I and mean, this is not an exaggeration, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I have four kids and. Uh, some of their first words that they learned were roll tide. Um, so um, that probably says way too much about how much we talk about <laughs> Alabama and our family. Um, I love it. But, um, but it's intense, man. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I think, I think the hatred comes from, we, we feel like we're, you know, we're the rightful, um, you know, big brother. We, we've got the championships, we've got the wins. we, uh, we are who we are, and you know Auburn thinks that they're close to who we are, and we we don't think they are, and so a lot of arrogance on our part, our part for sure, and a lot of a lot of delusion on their part. If I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at another one of your rivals in LSU, with the hiring of Ed Orgeron, does that make you more or less? And afraid's not the right word. Worried, concerned, think the game will be more competitive than if they had less miles. Ed Ed Ogeron, no, not at all. In fact, I was really, really happy when I found out that they were not going to hire Herman because I thought he would a Herman LSU marriage would would definitely be scary. I I, I had made the statement several times over the past few days before it broke that. Odron was going to be hired that man if they get Herman then then suddenly LSU's a player again and um I don't feel that way with Odron but I tell you what I do think is going to happen or could happen I don't know that it will but um it's pretty commonly known in Alabama circles that this is the last season in Alabama for for Lane Kiffin and um and we brought in Steve Sarkeesian 
about the second or third game into the season, we hired him as an offensive consultant, and that was kind of just a cover-up to to go ahead and get him on board to replace Kiffin because Kiffin con- Kiffin's contract ends this year at the end of, the, of this season. And um, as great as an offensive coordinator he, he's been for us and the, the talent that he gets out of the QB position and the way he gets the ball to the playmakers has been has been awesome, but Saban's pretty tired of his off-the-field annex. And um, and so he's he's kind of ready to, to see him go. And so Sarkeesian, what I would expect to happen, certainly things could change, but from what I'm being told, Sarkeesian will come in as offense coordinator. And Kiffin, Odron really, really, really wants Kiffin to come in as, off, as his offense coordinator. And from what I'm being told um, is uh, not as many head coaching positions are out there for Kiffin as some people might think after, after having this success at as an offense coordinator at Alabama, like he's had these last few years, you would think there'd be more people wanting to hire him as a head coach, but apparently that's not the case. And so he may end up as offense coordinator at LSU. And if that were to happen, then I think that would tremendously improve LSU from a standpoint of putting points on the board. And they've already got the defense. Uh, They just haven't been able to score uh, against good teams. And so um, you throw Kiffin into that mix with athletes that they have, and you get him a good quarterback, then that can be a that can be a scary combo. So, given what you just said, which is great information and insight into the the mind of a of a of a Bama supporter, the national media is going to run with this story as Lane Kiffin leaves Bama, goes to the arch rival. But then you said something interesting with the fact that you definitely thought it would improve LSU. Nick Saban must also be thinking the same thing, but would it be accurate to say that he dislikes working with Lane Kiffin so much that he's content to let him go to a chief rival? You know, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not there, obviously, inside the program. Uh, I know some guys that are close to the program, and I mean, I think – I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that he dislikes him so much that he's willing to let him go to LSU. Um, I don't know that it's that far down the line yet. I think the conversation is happening. Um, but I, I do think, you know, I do think that he's tired of Kiffin for sure. I think he loves what Kiffin's brought from a football standpoint. I think he's just – I think he's just tired of how Kiffin is um, – uh, off the field, at least that's again that's what I've been told. So um, I don't I don't claim to be an expert on that or an inside source on that, but that's just what I'm hearing. Um, and uh, I think he thinks he's got a really really good replacement in in Sark, Steve Sarkeesian. I don't think he I think Saban probably thinks he's not losing a whole lot, but when you go from Kiffin to to Sarkeesian. All right, let me ask you about the game that's actually being played this weekend that's not getting a lot of buzz because it's, you know, everyone feels will be a blowout. Is there anything at all about this Gator team that gives you pause as an Alabama fan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I think I think Bama fans have, have drank or drunk, I don't know what's the right word there, uh, the Kool-Aid for so long from Nick Saban of the process and taking one game at a time and never looking ahead and all this. I mean, I, you know, the fan bases we're, we're brainwashed right there with them. And, and, um, and I think every, every game, unless it's somebody like a, you know, Louisiana Lafayette or something where we're, we're kind of going in going, man, if we don't show up, certainly things can happen. And I think when you're talking about Florida, I mean, 
and I'm not just saying this. I mean, you're talking about a team that, even though the SEC East was really weak this year, I mean, you're you're still talking about Florida, and Florida gets the athletes year in and year out, and it's not like you're playing against a bunch of scrubs. And um, I know the offense has been challenged. It's been tough for for you guys to put points on the board, but your defense is is elite and has the capability of shutting teams down. So, um, I mean, I think it's certainly one of those things where, um, as an Alabama fan and other Bama fans that I've talked to, I mean, we 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 definitely have the opinion that if we don't come in ready to play, then anything can happen. I mean, we're not we're not so confident, or at least so arrogant, to think that oh man, we're going to show up and just kill Florida. I mean, I think I would imagine Florida's coming in with the mindset of we're going to shock the world. This is our chance to um, to really make a statement, and um, what better way than to upset the number one team in the country that's been number one all year and everybody's already wanting to hand them the trophy. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I think anything can happen if we're not ready to play. I mean, I do think, I do think Florida's going to have a really, really tough time moving the ball on our defense. Um, our defense is just, I think it really could be the best that Saban's put together at Alabama, which is, which is saying a lot because we've had some really good defenses over the years, but this one's really tremendous. I mean, it's, some of the some of the athletes on this defense are crazy good, um, and we're so fast. You can't get outside on us, and you can't run up the middle on us because we our defensive line is so so dominating. Our front seven so dominating. So, um, I mean, I would say we're we're going in feeling good, but but not overconfident. So this seems like a perfect segue, given that you said that you've drank the Kool-Aid with most other Bama fans about going <laughs> one day at a time. What is a team or what is the team in the playoffs that you would least like to play because you think they could give you the most trouble? I think it's Clemson. I think most Bama fans would say Clemson. Um, a lot of that probably is memories resonating from last year and what a tough team they were to play against last year and how we had to to squeak it out against them last last year in the championship game. And most of their players are still there. I mean, anytime you've got a team led by Deshaun Watson, I think that gives you the, the leg up on anybody. I mean, he's 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 unbelievable. And I know they haven't played as well this year as they did last year, but um on any given Saturday I really think that they can they can uh they can be a threat to us for sure. You know, Ohio State to some extent, although I've watched Ohio State a couple of times this year and I've yet to be overly impressed with them. I know the athletes are there, but they just um, – they have not played together as a team well, in my opinion. And um, I'm sure they would play really well against us. But I, I think we uh, – to me, Clemson brings a little more fear um, to us than, than Ohio State would, although I'm sure Ohio State would be a tough out as well. You know, if, if things stay the way they are, if everybody wins this weekend the way they're supposed to, and we go in as the number one seed, and Washington comes in as the four seed, I mean, I, um, I would, I would like to think that would be a fairly uh, favorable matchup for us. I'd love to have Washington in the first round. I think it would be similar to how what went down with Michigan State last year in the semifinals. I think we would be able to handle business fairly fairly well there and then and then face either Ohio State or Clemson in the final which Clemson of those two would scare me a little more all right there's a 24 point spread at least right now as we're speaking on the Florida 
Bama game. If you had to, I'm sure no one is picking Florida in this game, but if you had to take the points in Florida or Bama, which one are you taking? I don't know, man. I, I don't. I had not. I've been busy and I didn't even see what the spread was. That twenty-four seems high to me. Um, I just and Vegas is Vegas blows my mind, man. I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, the, the spread this weekend for Auburn was seventeen and a half, and we beat them by eighteen. Um, you know, the spread for LSU was I think was ten, and we beat them by ten. I mean, it's just nuts how they do this. So they usually know what they're talking about, but twenty-four seems high to me. I think I've. I don't think I would take the. I don't think I would take us covering on that. I think maybe we win by seventeen, something like that. So, well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us and giving us a, a wonderful insight into what it's like to be an Alabama fan at the height of their Roman dominance. <laughs> we we <laughs> Roman we appre- dominance. Well, yeah, right. You're in the height of Rome, living in Rome. We appreciate the time today. We don't really, Alan and I, look forward to this weekend, but we do look forward to the playoff and seeing what Alabama can do against uh, some real competition. Well, thanks, guys. Listen, um, I, I like to try to convince myself that I'm a humble Alabama fan, and I would remind you of this. We will ride this wave as long as we possibly can and enjoy it. But given your analogy, even Rome fell. So the, the day will come where, uh, where this won't be like it is. So we'll, we'll enjoy it while it lasts. So. <laughs> he is Jeff Norris. Thanks, Jeff. All right, man. Thanks, guys. The college football playoffs are looming, and there's also a looming controversy Should Penn State beat Wisconsin this weekend, they'll win the Big Ten and have a win over Ohio State. But Ohio State has a little bit better resume, potentially. Who would you take in that scenario, James? I would take Penn State. And I think there's there's good merits on both sides. But I just don't see how you you take a team that has beaten the team that you're going to put in over them into the playoff. Now, there's problems with that methodology. That's not a foolproof argument. But it goes against the very nature of head-to-head competition. And yes, Ohio State has one less loss. And yes, you can look at other metrics and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can look at the fact that Ohio State beat Michigan and that Penn State didn't. But for me, I'm taking Penn State. I think I'd have to take Ohio State in this scenario. You look at their out-of-conference wins. They they beat, uh, you know, now a 10-win Oklahoma team who's maybe going to win the Big 12. They beat Michigan, who absolutely crushed Penn State. And then their loss now, if you're talking about a good loss, is to this top 10 Penn State team. So I don't know. It feels like if you just put the blind resumes up and you didn't say like where their teams are in, like you would pick Ohio State. And so maybe that means they're in. Maybe they'll both get in. I don't know. But that feels kind of crazy that you would. Normally I would say, well, this team beat this team. So it's very clear cut. In this case, it doesn't feel as clear cut. Yeah, it does. And I think the good news is Penn State's not going to win this weekend. I don't think okay. it's going to sort itself out. But regardless, this is why I would argue for an 18 playoff, which we talked about last time. I think the the difference between four and five is is really infinitesimally small some years, and it's not fair. There's not a perfectly fair way to do it. The difference between number eight and number nine is much bigger. So I would err on that side. Well, that's why you're 18 playoff pro- proponent. Maybe when you're commissioner of some league, you'll get to enact <laughs> that. All right, let's 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 talk about championship games. Let's go ahead and pick them real quick. Colorado, Washington. Well, I love this game. It's on Friday, right? Yeah. Friday game, which is going to be fun. This is going to be a great, great game. Colorado is an incredible turnaround story. 
I feel like Washington's a little bit further ahead than them, so I'm going to take them in this game. But really, truly, either one of those teams could win that one. But I'm going to stick Washington. I agree. It's going to be close. I'm going to go with Washington as well. You've already maybe picked this game. Wisconsin versus Penn State? I think Wisconsin's going to win this game. I think Penn State's good. They are really hot, riding a lot of momentum. But Wisconsin way more battle-tested. And I think in these kind of games, the more battle-tested team wins. That's interesting. I'm going to go Penn State. I think offensively they're going to be able to put up enough points that I don't think Wisconsin's going to be able to match that. Oklahoma State, Oklahoma. So Mike Gundy, who could have been the coach here that nobody wanted, I suppose. Mike the mullet Gundy. I love it. <laughs> That's, that is a beautiful mullet. Though. It is. If you fantastic. haven't read about that story, please Google why Mike Gundy has a mullet. It is fascinating. It has to do with his son and a discussion they had over the summertime. Just do it. It's worth every second. This is a tough game for me. I This is like the classic Bob Stoops, like gets himself back into contention. And then does he win or lose? It depends on what year you're looking at. I feel like this Oklahoma State team is legitimately good. And that horrible loss they had that the officials took away from them kind of wrecked other momentum. I'm going to take Oklahoma State here, even though it goes against my better judgment. I'm going to go Oklahoma. I think Baker Mayfield, D.D. Westbrook, that combo is going to be a little too powerful for Oklahoma State to match. I don't know. This feels like a coin flip. It's a rivalry game, not a championship game. So who knows, really? But feels like it's going to be close. Clemson versus Virginia Tech, a surging Virginia Tech. Surging Virginia Tech, great job by Fuentes. He, he's really, I think, like like I've said, one of the best up-and-coming coaches um, that there is. Interesting that Virginia Tech got him. This this is a game that if Clemson becomes who I think they're becoming, which is the second most dangerous team behind Bama, then they need to win this game convincingly to prove it to me. It can't be close. It can't be by field goal. It needs to be a convincing 17-or-so-point win. I think Clemson's going to get that done. Man, I'm really, really tempted to pick Virginia Tech in this game. Clemson's the better team, obviously, but I like this Tech team. I think they've rebounded nicely after some early season stumbles. Wouldn't surprise me if this is close. Clemson should win this game, so I'll pick Clemson. But if you're a betting man, take the points with Virginia Tech. Okay, a couple big hires. We've mentioned one already. I'm going to ask you to grade them. Ed Orgeron to LSU, give me a grade, A through F. Because I'm very excited about it, it feels like an F. You replace Les Miles, who won 10 games every single year, for a guy who's 21 and 29 as a head coach who failed miserably at Ole Miss, which was another SEC West school, who's known as a good recruiter. That seems It seems really crazy to me. That seems like a big, big miss, and anything you're doing to say he's going to be good seems like hope. And while hope sometimes might be right, it's not a great strategy. And so that, I'm going to give it an F. Yeah, I'm going to say D- minus, just because he is a good recruiter and a motivator. But the whole reason you fired Les Miles is because he couldn't beat Nick Saban, essentially. Do you really think Ed Orgeron's going to beat Nick Saban? No. Like, you'd never take that coaching matchup. And Alabama's always going to have at least as good a talent. So anytime you do something that other teams are excited about you, you doing, like you said, every other fan base in the SEC was like, oh, Excellent. Thumbs up. They didn't go and hire the other guy, my boy Tom Herman. I'm going to give that hire by Texas an A because that's the, he's the best guy in the market. Now, you can you know, say he had some losses where he shouldn't have, but I think he's the most qualified guy, and he's a perfect fit there at Texas. Yeah, that's an A-plus hire, especially given the reports that broke early in the week that LSU was going to get him. And then, obviously, Joe Olivia's disastrous year continues, which I love, really love that. But Tom Herman, for a second, I guess, people thought, hey, he was going to LSU, Texas is going to lose out. And then Texas, I think, would have really looked like 
a really laughing stock program. Yeah, that would have been terrible. The way they were dealing with Charlie Strong and the way their boosters are. But they kind of come out now smelling like a rose. Charlie's gone. Charlie, as Charlie is, is always very gracious. Herman comes in. They got the guy they wanted. He was never serious about LSU, which means he thought highly about Texas. And he comes from the Urban Meyer coaching tree as well as several other really notable coaches he has experience under. He's easily the best coach out there. If he does not succeed, you can't argue with a hire. They got the guy that you would want in that scenario. So Texas sort of, I think, wakes up and feels, hey, our day is now coming again. And LSU, I keep going back to it. It's just, I, you can't feel good about it. So totally different situations here. Texas is like, yes, we're back. And LSU is like, what have we done? Maybe? Yeah. Maybe? We know. gave that guy the job, the guy who yeah. won three conference games in three years at Ole Miss. I can't believe they went and did that. And also, as someone pointed out, where's he going to go? I mean, you could wait a month and still make this hire. Why the rush to do this? I guess the safe face, which is Joe Leva's main goal as AD, is the safe face. Like you said, we won't be used as a bargaining chip. It's like, who cares? I don't know. They they seem to think a lot of themselves right now down there, at least he does, and it's it's hurting the program. So I, terrible hire by them. Great hire by Texas. That guy recruits Texas well. I think he's, they're going to be immediately good, is my prediction. Yeah, he seems the most like Urban Meyer with regards to how he talks, how he acts, how detailed he is. He hasn't quite had the same level of success that Urban's had because Urban won titles everywhere he was. But obviously his record against ranked opponents is, is pretty spectacular. He's won six games in a row there. With that, we come to the close of this episode. We want to thank you, as always, for listening, for liking the Facebook page, for tweeting and retweeting about the show, for supporting us so generously the way that you do. If you would like to win some fanessentials.net swag, just retweet retweet (laughs) this week's episode of the show for a chance to be entered into Alan's random number generator next week. Uh, As always, thanks again, guys, for your support. Alan and I most definitely appreciate it, and we love doing the show, and we look forward, maybe look forward to talking to you next Monday. Could be another tough segment, but uh, enjoy the week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.